All right. Good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read just a few verses from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to pause and pray. The Lord would guide our time together. What verse? Uh, just verse 1. Okay. Philippians 1, verse 1. Everybody have a handout? Everything? All right. You need one? Uh, are there any extra? I already got it. Okay. All right. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always and every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the, def- in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. All right, let's, let's pray. Father, we, we come to you this morning um, asking that you would help us to see it, the importance of the topic that we are discussing this morning. Um, as we get into the weeds of some logistics of church structure and polity, and Father, we pray that this would be a moment where we humble ourselves before your word and we just seek to try to be faithful. Um, God, we pray that you would help us to worship you in response to just the fact that you would inspire text of scripture for us to read and understand. And we pray that you would, you would guide our time together now. We love you so much and are thankful that you've called us to be reconciled to you and to one another in this thing that you call the church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're in Philippians to begin with this morning. The church at Philippi was, as all churches were in the first century, a church plant. The church at Philippi was a church planted by the Apostle Paul. In fact, we have the story of its planting in Acts chapter 
16, where Paul goes outside the city walls to the riverside. He sees some ladies there and he shares the good news of Jesus with a woman named Lydia. The Lord opens Lydia's heart to pay attention to the gospel is what Acts 16 tells us. She's baptized. Her whole household is baptized. She comes to faith. She starts a church in her house. She begins to open her church to other believers. And years later, Paul has moved on to other missionary endeavors. And now he's writing back to this church plant in Philippi, which has changed over the years now, right? It has, it's no longer just a, a, a sort of loose-knit group of people who now believe in Jesus meeting in Lydia's home. Now there's even a structure to it. There's, there's, there's an establishment to it. He writes back to the Philippian church because they have begun to take on missions themselves. They somehow have sent Paul support financially, have sent Paul encouragement from Philippi while Paul is imprisoned in Rome. So we're talking hundreds of miles with no planes or cars or, you know, mailing system, right? That was like Amazon Prime. They didn't just Amazon Prime him a care package, right? They have mobilized to a degree that they're able to take support across land and water, across hundreds of miles to get to a missionary whom had helped them get started, right? So, but I want you to notice how Paul greets them in the opening lines of the letter. He recognizes three distinct groups of people. So you have verse 1 there, Philippians 1.1, and you've got a couple blanks that you can fill in just from the text itself. But he recognizes three distinct groups of people. The saints who are at Philippi, saints meaning the holy ones or the, the set-apart ones. So these are the people that have set, been set apart from the city of Philippi at large, and now they've been joined together to this church in Philippi. You could say to the church members of Philippi, to the ones that are distinct from the rest of the Philippians, right? To the overseers, which is the word that we'll be discussing a lot today, and then to the deacons. So this church plant is now ordered Organized and it's marked by three distinct groups of people whom Paul thinks if he's going to write a letter of thanksgiving, he needs to address all three groups of people because all three groups of people came together in order for him to receive the support that he's received, right? So he's, he's being specific on purpose because he's recognized this was a corporate work to get him the support that he needed while he was in prison. So I, I, may, I may use the terms for these three groups. Uh, I may use the term offices, three offices of the church. Uh, and what I mean by offices, I just mean a biblical category of a person, right, in the church who requires unique qualifications and has unique responsibilities in the community life of the church, right? So offices isn't a biblical word, but you, you hear this used a lot in theology, offices of the church. Elder is an office, deacon is an office, and even church member being... And office. So let me not do that. I'm going to skip that. So when I see Philippians 1.1 and this picture of Paul very nonchalantly greeting these three distinct groups of people, saying thank you to them, talking about their partnership of the gospel with them, I see 
a structure that I want to know more about if I want to plant a church today, right? I'm like, okay, if these three groups of people came together to accomplish this missional task and the Bible is inspired by God, then I want to know what those roles are, how those roles work together to accomplish missional things. Because if I want to accomplish the mission, I want to understand the machine that accomplishes the mission. And, and if God is not silent, right, about how um, uh, our families are to be led, our spouses are to be loved, if he's not silent about how we are to work our jobs, I don't think he's silent on how we should structure our churches. I think that the examples, the models that we have in the New Testament should serve as our starting place when we ask the question, well, how do we even do church, right? How do we even do this thing? Now, I recognize that many seminary professors at New Orleans Seminary, many pastors in the city who I love and respect and you know, I think God's going to use them greatly. They will respond to me when I say things like this, and, and they'll say this, and I, I'll quote what I've heard. The New Testament church government or structure that we see, it's just descriptive. In other words, it's just describing what they did. It's not prescriptive. So you hear those words. Prescriptive means it's not telling you you have to do this. It's just describing the way they did it in their cultures. Therefore, we... We have freedom to structure our churches however we want, using whatever language we want, as long as it accomplishes the mission that God has for us, right? So we have freedom to structure our churches that's appropriate for our culture, for our our cultural moment. Um, So, I mean, I had uh, this conversation with with Dr. Putnam. I mean, I love that man, loves the Lord, brilliant, systematic theologian. Like, has written more books, he's written more pages than I've read in my life. But his position is that church structure is descriptive, not prescriptive. To which I respond to him, and I've responded to um, even the Greek professor at, at NOBTS. I've responded to them, but why? I mean, even if it's true, if it's just describing something and wasn't intended to be prescriptive, why would you? want to structure your church in ways that are drastically different than the ways that the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to direct their churches in the first century and then to write it down. Like, why would you want the positions in your church to be made up titles totally disconnected from your church's daily Bible reading? Why would you not want them to recognize the offices in their church as they're reading the letters to the churches. <laughs> what could be the motivation, um, what could be a good motivation for ignoring a pattern that Paul established in favor of my own pattern or my own design more influenced by American business? And, and I just don't understand that, right? Um, and so, again, this is a place where good, godly people can disagree um, and I'm going to plant my flag pretty firmly in. I think if the Holy Spirit inspired apostles said this is the way we're going to do it in Ephesus, in Crete, in Philippi, then I'm going to say ah, I'm going to stick with that for St. Rose. I'm going to try to imitate as best as I can what I've seen to be passed down. So 
So we're going to talk about these three offices that we see sort of showing up over and over again. The first one we're going to talk about is one that we discussed at length last week, but we're just going to make one more specific point. So last week we talked about membership and discipline, right? That, that the Bible makes a case that Christians should be meaningfully joined together in a way that they're responsible for one another. Today we're going to talk about how those meaningfully joined together, responsible for people, uh, for one another people, actually make decisions together for the church as a whole, right? So here's your first blank, truth number one, or blank number one. God designed the church to be governed by the congregation. Now what do I mean by governed? I mean that the collective voice of the saints, of the congregation has the final decision-making power and authority, okay? That it's, that it's the collective group that makes the decision for the church as a whole. Now, let me give you a few examples. The next blank is this. Members are the final court of appeal for church discipline, right? So we talked about church discipline last week, but one of the things that amazes me about church discipline is that in each of the occasions where you find it, you don't find Paul or Jesus putting the responsibility of church discipline on the pastors or on the elders. He puts the responsibility of church discipline on the members, on the church itself, the congregation. When he rebukes them in 1 Corinthians 5 for, for ignoring this guy's egregious sin, he doesn't actually even call out the pastors in the church. He just calls out the church at large, right? So in Matthew 18, the process is... Um, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't, take one or two others, that every charge may be established by two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the pastors. No, it doesn't say that. He says, tell it to the church. Tell it to the assembly or the group as a whole. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my Spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Again, corporate, when you guys get together. And then one really clear one, and you may want to write this one down. We haven't referenced this one before yet. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. So, so I think this is a letter written after 1 Corinthians. And Paul's referencing back to that church discipline situation. And apparently the guys repented now which is praise the Lord, or it seems that way. I'm kind of guessing here, but listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, If anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this person who's been disciplined, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or you may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now, something's occurred where this person has inflicted pain on the whole community, right? Uh, he says, it's not just me that this person's hurt. It's the whole church that this person's hurt. Um, the church enacted some form of church discipline, and it seems that now the person has come back, and he's saying, now comfort them. It's over, Right? But, the, but what's interesting is the way the punishment was carried out. He said, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. The congregation apparently, I mean, why do you have a majority? What do you, 
what do you have to have done to have a majority for something? A vote, right? I mean, the congregation came together, and apparently some of the people said we shouldn't do this, but the majority of the people said, no, yeah, we need to do this. And then that, that is what was done. So, uh, so members are the final court of appeal for matters of church discipline. Next, members select and submit, their own, uh, submit to their own leaders, right? Nowhere in Scripture do leaders uh, have ultimate authority. Um, I, I, I can't. I, I don't. I don't wield the authority of command. I don't command anyone. I wield the authority of influence, and then members or people decide whether they want to submit to my leadership as a pastor or not. Right? I, I can't force anyone to do anything. And and so when anytime there's a, a church or any member of our church, they they willingly sort of choose to submit themselves to my leadership as a member or not, or they can go down the street and and not, but. But so my position, whether our formal processes, like we said last week, whether our formal processes reflected or not, my position is always one that the congregation decides whether I am in it or not. Uh, they decide by voting me out or they decide by walking out <laughs> whether I'm going to be their pastor or not. Um, but we do have this uh, model that begins as early as Acts chapter 6 where the apostles are needing deacons, which we'll talk about in a minute. And in Acts chapter 6 verse 3 Rather than the apostles just picking deacons, they look to the whole congregation and they say, Brothers, Acts 6 verse 3, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, who, who we will appoint to this duty, right? So here's the apostle saying, you guys pick who meets these qualifications and bring them to us. Because, and honestly, I think the apostles are recognizing you guys will know better than we do. You'll know whether the person is above reproach and full of wisdom and spirit and how they operate in the marketplace better than we do because you know them in their everyday lives. And so, so select and then we will affirm. First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. That might be a good one to, to turn to. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 refers to elders and pastors, which we'll again talk about in a minute. But this is what it says. It says... No, wait, I don't need to get there. First Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Then Paul says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. So here Paul's commenting on the relationship between elder and congregation. The congregation is the one who pays his salary, right? Uh, the congregation obviously must choose to submit to that elder or not <laughs> if they're going to pay his salary, right? Um, they also have the responsibility of bringing charges against the elder. If the elder is acting in a disqualified manner, the congregation is responsible for recognizing that our pastor has fallen off the deep end or he's not, right? There's responsibility even on the members to bring a charge. And if it's a charge, it better not be just you who's got a problem with them, right? Because individual members are always going to have problems with pastors because pastors are talking to them about their sin. And, and so it needs to be something that more than just you sees, right? but that the corporate sort of congregation sees there's a problem here with the pastor. 
We could go on to Hebrews 13. We could look at others, but essentially members select and submit to their own leaders. Next, members are responsible for recognizing and rejecting false teachers. So Galatians 1, Paul says in Galatians 1, 6, I'm astonished that you're deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And he rebukes them again. He doesn't rebuke the pastors. He doesn't rebuke the deacons. He rebukes the church as a whole for listening to false teachers. Members are the primary disciple makers, right? We saw in Ephesians 4 that prophets, apostles, uh, shepherds were given for a particular purpose, and that purpose is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The saints for the work of the ministry. So I'm hope, I hope that you're, you're seeing this pattern that, that the church leaders are not the most important element of congregational life. But the congregation <laughs> is the most important element of the congregational life. And then the leaders help steer and shepherd that congregation and how they make decisions. Um, it, let me pause right there. Are there any questions or thoughts about that before I move on to the next office. Does this help you see a little bit more why meaningful membership is important if members are going to have these types of responsibilities? Do you see that connection? If you've got that type of decision-making power, then it matters that you're a born-again Christian before you're invited to make those types of decisions, right? Um, I've heard it joked that you should have to get a, a license to vote in this country <laughs> because it matters, right? <laughs> Which I don't agree with that, but, but, uh, but in, in the church, there is a sense in which you have to have a license to vote. You have to be a born-again Christian, full of the Spirit. You have to have been baptized and, and whatnot. So you've got this group of people, um, but any group of people needs leaders <coughs> or else what do you have? You have Anarchy, right? Chaos. <laughs> Chaos, right? Judges. You have the book of Judges. All the people do what is right in their own eyes, right? So sheep need shepherds, families need fathers, armies need generals, teams need coaches. Every organization needs order to it in order to operate. Uh, so turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. <laughs> Um, the book of Titus for me is so important when I think about understanding what the church is and, and how the church is structured. Because what you find is young Titus planting churches on the island of Crete. And he finds himself in a seemingly impossible ministry context. So in the book of Titus, um, written to Titus on the island of Crete, uh, would have been a, a unique thing just because of how unique Crete was as a place. Right? So a group of Cretans have become Christian. Titus has been left there to help establish the church. But Crete is not a nice, clean, suburban neighborhood in the first century world. The island of Crete was the self-proclaimed origin of Zeus worship. Not only that, the Cretans were known as being some of the most immoral, untruthful people. And so, so there was even like a, 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 a slang word in the first century world that if you were being a liar... They would say, you're being Cretan. You're, you're Cretaning right now. You're, you're being like Crete who are known for their lying. So here's Titus planting a church on an island known for lies. 
known for immorality. Um, So Paul's writing to Titus to encourage him in his church planting efforts in a very difficult place. And Paul cuts right to the most important task that Titus must give himself to. Now look at Titus chapter 1 verse 5. We get to the greeting and now we have our first bit of instruction. Titus chapter 1 verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order. Okay, so... Into order. If something needs to be put into order, that means that it is currently in a state of disorder, right? Or it's highly susceptible to being chaotic, right? Uh, And if you look through the book of Titus, that is exactly what we find in Titus. False teachers are upsetting whole families. Titus chapter 1 verse 11 says they must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families by their teaching for shameful gain, what they ought not to teach. Hypocrisy is running rampant. Uh, Titus chapter 1 verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. There's division, fighting, and arguments. Titus chapter 3 verse 9 talks about foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law that are unprofitable and worthless. So what is to be done? What should Titus do? This is why I left you in Crete, verse 5, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So this brings us to our second group of people. Truth number two, God designed the church to be led by a plurality of qualified elders. A plurality of qualified elders. Now this is not unique to Crete. Apparently, this is Paul's order of business whenever he starts a new church. So hold your spot in Titus, because we'll come back to it. Hold your spot in Titus and look at Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. I think Acts is intentionally written... To provide snapshots of community life and missional life along the way to help the first century readers know what they're supposed to do, right? So Acts 2.42 through 47, boom, snapshot of community life. Fast forward a few chapters later to Acts chapter 4 where they're, they're sharing and having common unity among one another. Snapshot, right? And now I think what we have here is a snapshot of what Paul is doing everywhere he goes as a missionary. So look at Acts 14.21. When they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had Believed. So here's the pattern. Preach the gospel, strengthen disciples, appoint elders. Now you can move on to the next place. Because now you have what's necessary for them to be a functioning church. So the question is, okay, what in the world is an elder? What does an elder do? All right? Um, <clears throat> pretty much everybody in here, the, before you came to this church, the most common word for referring to what I do would be pastor. Right, that pretty much, pretty much across the board. And we talked about this earlier that 
the difficulty is when you go to your New Testament, English Standard Version, that word never occurs in the New Testament. The word pastor never occurs. That's, that's been adopted from the Latin Vulgate. Pastor is the, the Latin translation for shepherd, right? And even shepherd, uh, most times in the New Testament, is a verb, right? Uh, it's what, what pastors, what elders do more so than it is the office that they were called. And so the first thing that we want to, to think through <clears throat> is kind of what an elder is, what they do, and what, how these words come into play. So, so we're going to roll through these pretty quickly, all right? There are three words the Bible uses interchangeably to describe the office of elder within the church, and each one points to a particular function. So uh, first blank, elders lead by example. <clears throat> elders lead by example. The word elder comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which is where the Presbyterian church gets its name, right? So Presbyterian, they got their name. And they said, we're going to be led by presbyteros, elders. It does not mean old person, okay? If it did, I would have been out of a job a long time ago, right? Now, it's getting to where I'd be qualified more so than it was seven years ago. <laughs> but it does not refer to physical age. Rather, the point of the word is spiritual maturity. Elders are to model spiritual maturity, um, they're, they're to model uh, a character of spiritual maturity. This is why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, right? But set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, right? So many of the elders in the first century, uh, you know, I mean, were a young group of guys. Um, I mean, Jesus was only 33, and he was the oldest among the disciples when they were being sent out, right? And so, so it's a young group of guys. I mean, we're talking guys in their late teens and in 20s. Now, prolonged adolescence wasn't as much of a thing back then. <laughs> I think today's 25 was their 15. But anyways, um, I digress. Uh, the Bible, though, uh, is very, very clear that this office of elder is not for everyone. Um, there are specific qualifications that must be met. Now, flip back to Titus. And, and, and Paul wants to make this very clear to Titus because he'll have a bigger problem on his hands if he has unqualified people setting the example <laughs> in Crete. So Titus chapter 1. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to let uh, uh, Mahela, can you read loud and proud for me? Um, verses 6 through 9. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers. Do not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. All right, so the point is these men must have exemplary character to set an example for the rest of the congregation and to be able to survive and do well the other responsibilities that they've also been tasked with, right? So it's not just for setting an example that they've got to be qualified for this. It's also for the sake of their leadership over the congregation. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 gives another list of qualifications very similar to Titus 1. 
um, with a few differences. I don't think Paul's being exhaustive with these qualifications. I think he's saying they need to be a model of godliness. One, for the example, and two, this is your next blank, elders oversee. Elders oversee. Titus chapter 3 verse 1. I'm sorry, Timothy chapter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, before it gives its list of qualifications, says, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Right? So the word overseer comes from the Greek word episkopos. You know what denomination comes from that word? Episcopalian, right? So they saw that word and said, We're going to be structured around. Episcopos, Episcopalians, right? And it's <clears throat> um, in older translations, it would have been translated bishop, okay? Now, the word points to the responsibility of watching over the congregation. It points to the responsibility of oversight, stewardship over people and resources. And you can see Paul uses these titles interchangeably. Now, this is, this is where, um, like the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the Episcopalians, and... Uh, not as much the Presbyterians, but they see these three words and they say these are three different offices in the church. So you've got you got bishops and then you got, uh, uh, you know, another level under them. Uh, then you got another level under them. So they see hi- hierarchical structures. Right. I don't see that in the New Testament. I see all these words being used interchangeably for the same role. OK. And I hope you can see that, too. Right. So in Titus chapter one, verse seven, appoint elders. But then look at verse seven. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So he just said appoint elders, but then I just called him an overseer, right? Do you see the overlapping here with my little dance? <laughs> um, Philippians 1.1, what's it called in Philippians 1.1? He's writing to the overseers. overseers. He doesn't say elders. Does that mean they didn't have elders? They only had overseers? Or is it the same office? I think it's the same office. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to himself, okay? And he's going to give a final charge to them. And this is what he says. In Acts 20, verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves, to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Same word. So he calls the presbyteros, and he says, God's made you episkopos, right? Different words trying to get at two different functions of the same role. So, so one of my roles as an elder overseer of St. Rose Community Church is to oversee the church's mission and life together. I try to provide leadership, guidance, oversight to all of our ministries, right? One of my jobs is to try to have a feel of the whole. Not everybody has to do that, right? I mean, members can... can more so focus in on a lane of ministry and their giftings, whereas elders, overseers need to at least have a thumb on what's happening across the whole board, right? So that they can lead and guide and try to help the whole move into a direction. Now, the last word that shows up is the word we've already discussed, and that's the word shepherd. So that's your next blank, elders, shepherd. <laughs> so flip to First Peter chapter 5 with me. I know this is dense stuff. But so much of what we believe about the church, we've just inherited. We haven't actually really seen it playing out in the Bible. So that's what I'm hoping we just see it play out over and over again. First Peter chapter 5, Peter writing to the church undergoing severe persecution. 
Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. And now here's poemen, the shepherd word. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, episkopos, right? Oversight. So now you have all three words happening basically in the same paragraph for the same group of people. Uh, Elders should shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive unfading crown of glory. Yes, ma'am. What's the shepherd word? Uh, poimen. I don't know how to spell it. Um, I'll get back to you on the spelling of that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so when we, one thing, I mean, I, I don't want to, I, I know we're, we're hitting a lot of nuts and bolts here. Um, but I don't want to, this isn't really in my notes, but I don't want to move so quickly past First Peter 5 and some of these things and miss the beauty of this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, God loves us. And God, our Father, is a shepherd to us. He perfectly, sets the, he perfectly sets the example. He perfectly oversees everything in the cosmos and stewards it well. Um, and, and what did the good shepherd do for his sheep? According to John 10, what does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. And you hear, you hear that and Peter's like, okay, elders, just make sure you're not doing this under compulsion, that, that you're not doing this for selfish gain. And he directs their eyes to the chief shepherd who didn't do it under compulsion or for selfish gain. But the way in which he shepherded, the way in which he oversaw, the way in which he set an example was to literally die for the sheep, right? And so, so what, is, what are pastors being called to in 1 Peter 5? Come and die in love for the people that you're shepherding. Die a hundred deaths, die a thousand deaths um, in order to, to lead them into green pastures and still waters, right? Um, and I feel that. There's been some conversations I've had over the last month where I feel like I've had to die several times in that conversation or in that email exchange. I have to, I have to crucify the sinful flesh in me and, and come and die in hopes that the other party will come to still waters rather than run off the cliff, right? And so the whole idea of pastors, the whole idea of shepherds was not so that sinful, prideful men could have platforms where everybody gets to look at them when they talk. The, the concept, the reason God designed pastors, elders, shepherds, it's a gift for the people of God to have somebody charged by the God of the universe to care and watch over your spiritual life as best as they can in their sinful frame, right? And then to do so as if one day they'll have to answer to the chief shepherd who, who does that. That's a, it's a beautiful concept um, that came from the heart and mind of God. It didn't come from the heart and mind of man. You know, it's interesting because uh, you hear about <clears throat> discussions or whatever, and my, my sons are good examples. Very passionate mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, the, the, this... Um, what you're saying, especially the elder-driven and, and um, 
in that passion, it, it, it's often hard to not become defensive or prideful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and what you're talking about is crucifying, you know, that, and, and, you know, so in other words, not everybody might be on the same, you mm -hmm. know, feel that you are, but it's, 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 it's really a balance in, in being able to talk about it in a, in a way that it doesn't put somebody mm -hmm. else on the defensive. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really a total lowering of our pride, mm -hmm. which is not easy. To yeah, absolutely. It's born out of humility. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And something that we quickly lose, and, and why Peter's saying this in this way, right? I mean, P Peter feels that even now. I mean, um, uh, the, the whole Roman Empire was all about prestige and honor and putting yourself in a place of honor. I mean, you lived and died based on receiving honor from other people. And so now the church has the structure where there are leaders, just like Roman council has leaders. And Paul say, or Peter saying, you wield this in a different way, <laughs> right? You, you don't wield your leadership in the same way as, as the Romans do. And it's the same thing that Jesus says. You're going to lead over people, but it's not going to be like the Roman system. You're going to lead by dying for them over and over and over and over again for their good and the Lord's glory, right? We have a culture of Christian hedonism a lot of that is from the celebrity it is. pastors, and, and it's driven <clears throat> down into the congregations. Mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. just, it's really um, cultivated. It is. It is. And, and I think, I'm, I won't hold that thought, because I think that, we're going to talk about plurality here in just a second, and I think that one of the reasons for plurality is to try to combat that. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons we see that in the New Testament, but let me, let me give a couple more things. So we're talking about um, shepherding, now, I do want to say this. Um, when we think about shepherd language, we, we often tend to ascribe the word shepherd with pastoral duties like hospital visitation, counseling, wedding, funerals. Um, and, and I certainly think that's part of the task. But I think primarily when the New Testament describes shepherding or uses the word shepherd, it's emphasizing the role of the shepherd to feed and protect the flock, right? So when the Bible uses shepherding, and we do this, we think, oh, he's doing pastoral work because he's at the bedside at a hospital. And I think absolutely he's doing Christian work there. I mean, all of us should bear the burdens of one another and love one another. But when the Bible uses shepherding, it thinks feeding the flock. And what does the pastor or elder overseer, what does he feed the flock with? It's definitely not my home cooking because y'all would be hungry. <laughs> The, the word of God, right? So that next blank is elders teach. So elders teach, and that's clear in the qualifications. The only qualification in 1 Timothy 3 that is unique, I mean, all the other ones are stuff that every Christian should be pursuing. I mean, every Christian should be sober-minded. Every Christian should probably not be a drunk. Every Christian should not be greedy. Every Christian should be humble. But there's one Qualification tucked away in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus that says they must be able to teach. They must have some sort of God-given ability or capacity to teach true things and to recognize false things, right? And not everybody has that ability, and that's okay. That's from the Lord. He gives and takes away as he pleases, right? But every elder needs to, Titus 1.9, this is super important, 
He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So this, if you're going to be an elder, you have to be able to teach a lesson, right, to the church. You've got to teach. But you also have to be able to recognize when someone's teaching falsely. And you've got to have the cojones to rebuke it. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Because it, it's one thing to prepare a Sunday school lesson and to teach it. It's another thing to hear somebody talking and to recognize that's false doctrine. It's another thing to feel confident enough with the doctrine that you hold to then engage with conversation with them and say, that's wrong and here's why. Having not prepared, having not whatever. And so, so what, what Paul's saying is if you're going to appoint someone as an elder, they need to comprehensively be able to teach sound doctrine, recognize bad doctrine, and confront the person who's spreading false doctrine, right? So he kind of raises the ante. Every Christian makes disciples teaching all that Jesus observed. But sitting across the table at coffee with somebody, helping them understand the Bible, is different than the kind of teaching that Paul's calling the elder or the shepherd to, to take part in here, right? He's talking whole church protection from false teacher type of role, right? Same thing in Acts 20, fierce wolves will come up from among you. Pay careful attention. So recap, elders lead by example, they oversee, they shepherd, they teach. The Cretan church is in need, right? If they're going to be put into order of example setting, resource overseeing, truth teaching, wolf fighting shepherds who give their lives up for the spiritual growth of God's people. Now, um, and I can just side note, and this is why it's crazy to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I don't need the church. When God says, I've built an entire system to make sure that you continue to follow Jesus rightly. And you're saying, I don't need that system, right? I don't need pastors. It's like, well, God thinks you do. I mean, he, he, he installed that for some sort of reason. I mean, you might be at level, think you're at level 10 Christianity uh, and you don't need that anymore. But we don't have an example of that in the New Testament. Um, you know, everyone's seen that little thing that gets shared around of like the, is it the, the zebra like running away from the whole flock? I think Lee shared that this week. You got the whole zebra group here and then, and then one zebra off by itself just getting mauled by a lion. And it says, when Christians say, I love Jesus, but don't need the church. <laughs> and that's, what are you if you're a sheep without the flock? You're sheep food, uh, you're wolf food. So um, now all this leaves us with an important question, Okay. If all of us need shepherding, if every single one of us is sinful and prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. What about the shepherds themselves? What about pastors? I mean, aren't they human? Aren't they prone to wander? Aren't they susceptible to wolves and to sin and to some temptation and to weariness? The answer is yes, personal experience. (laughs) So then the question becomes, what's the plan for them? How does God care for them? Are they just supposed to be uniquely stronger than all the other Christians who are called to different professions in their life and they're meant to stand alone? I think the answer is absolutely not. They're not meant to stand alone. And I think that this is one of the ways that modern churches over the last hundred years have missed the boat with our church polity and our church structure. 
So most churches I've served with before St. Rose Community Church have operated for many years with one single elder called the senior pastor. And all teaching, all shepherding, all overseeing flowed from that one man or through that one man. He's the only one to stand on teach and teach on Sunday mornings. For the most part, unless he's going on vacation, he's the only one to do pastoral counseling. He stands alone in his leadership over the congregation. And what you begin to have is one man functioning more like a CEO over an organization, more so than an elder who's overseeing and shepherding real people. And and part of that is by necessity. It's not even his fault. He's been put into an impossible situation. (laughs) He's had to change the nature of his job description because One man cannot bear the burden of shepherding hundreds of people. It is literally impossible, much less thousands of people, right? One man cannot keep himself from the destructive power of pride when there's no one close enough to confront him or comfort him. You're expecting one sinful man to stand up on a stage and talk for 45 minutes every week while hundreds of people stare at him for all the answers to their questions and problems. And then you're saying, hey, stay humble, figure that out. (laughs) How you go on and do your lives. (laughs) The Bible doesn't give us a picture of the human heart that's capable of handling that kind of thing, right? Now, if persecution was happening, it'd be a little bit more helpful, right? It's, it's, It's harder to be prideful when you're getting flogged, right? But in America, that's not the case. You get, you get book deals and you get invited to speak to bigger audiences. And, and you have your face on the screen and on the pamphlet. And, and you do the little three-minute bumper video with the different angles. And you talk about the things. And you're the spiritual guru. I mean, I mean, you're literally blowing smoke up these guys' rears and then saying, stay humble. And then jetting, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a difficult thing. Shepherds, pastors, people are sinful. And so I think a church that's built on one man's leadership will fall the moment that that man falls. This is what I, what I, why I believe in God's sovereignty and inspiration of the scripture. We see the primary goal over and over and over again of having multiple elders in a singular church. So Titus 1.5, put what remained into order, appoint elders plural, in every town I directed you. Acts 14, 23, they appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular. Elders, plural, church, singular. And notice the plurality in Philippians 1, 1. He's writing to the overseers in Philippi. So this leads me to one more responsibility for the elders. Elders raise up more elders, right? So, so if, if we're going to have men that meet these qualifications, that are able to teach, they're able to do what Titus 1.9 says, then part of the work of the pastor is to constantly be trying to work himself out of the job, right? To constantly be trying to work in such a way that when he falls, the whole church doesn't fall. But rather, the church is reliant on multiple men who are setting an example, overseeing, and can teach the Bible. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul tells Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I think he's talking about the office of elder. Give them the responsibility from God to guard this gospel and make sure the congregation believes it, obeys it, shares it to the nations, right? Um, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 
First Timothy 5, 17, 18, we read this a second ago. Let the elders, plural, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor. And then Paul says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, um, I think, uh, and apparently, uh, uh, there seems to be um, this thought that Timothy would be actively raising up more and more elders to oversee and, and steward and, and shepherd and pastor the church. But even though there's elders who are, have equal authority in the church, there might be some who give themselves to the work uh, in, a, in a particular way where they're laboring for preaching and teaching. In other words, they're laboring to fulfill their responsibility so much so it's difficult for them to have another job. And Paul says, provide for them. Provide for their needs. If they can't labor out there, then the church provides for their labor here. And he says, especially those who are laboring, preaching, and teaching. And then he gives uh, the command to, to, to provide for them. Um, <clears throat> last thing I'll read is right there in 2 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, where he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Um, in the context of elders, what's Paul saying? This position is very important. It's important to have a plural elders, but it's important to have qualified elders. So make sure that these are men who will shepherd one another and shepherd the church well, right? Now, um, I could talk about St. Rose Community Church and give you a real-world example about how this, this functions, right? So we have three elders presently, um, hopefully a couple more by the end of the year. Um, Drew is a staff elder, in other words, he does so much work for the church that he can't work another job, so we help pay for him. And he's responsible for worship ministry, student ministry, pastoral shepherding, and a whole lot of other things. And the other day, someone from the seminary asked Drew, what do you do? Now, keep in mind, person from the seminary, they have siloed off uh, positions. They don't think elder, deacon, member. They think youth pastor, college pastor, children's minister. They've siloed off ministry and all these things. They don't even have category for elder. Right with the responsibilities that I've just laid out. So they asked Drew what, what he does, and they expect him to be like a typical youth pastor, right? who's kind of like trying to justify his existence all day, and they teaches Wednesdays, and then anyways, um, does, a, does a whole lot of events and programs. But Drew responds, and this was, this was Drew's day that day, because um, he was talking about it later. On that particular day, Drew met with two guys in their 50s for discipleship, Helped with logistics for uh, Julio, our Southeast Asian missionary, uh, for his classes and for his travel home and for his finances. He prepped to teach his youth lesson. The next day, he uh, prepped for the worship service. On the following day, he did uh, marital counseling. Um, and the guy at the seminary was like, what? Because they think youth pastor. Drew's not a youth pastor. He's an elder over the whole church. And youth ministry is one of the particular responsibilities that he gets paid to oversee. But he's not limited to that. He's a shepherd over all of you. And he's a shepherd over me. He, he, he can preach for me. He can talk to me frankly at our, at our elder meeting. Um, we also have Stephen Picard, who's an engineer at Entergy. He does not get paid by the church. He has time to work another job. And his main contribution, uh, beyond just preaching for me when he can, he does um, premarital counseling as well. He does, uh, he's going to be teaching a spiritual formation class in the fall, doing all that as a volunteer. But beyond that, what he does is he brings <coughs> wisdom and objectivity to our two-hour uh, meeting every week. 
and, and he's able to be there, three guys in the room, and, and, and he's not on a payroll. I'm not his boss. He can talk to me however he wants. <laughs> he can tell me I'm sinful. He can tell me to sit down. He can tell me to shut up. I mean, he doesn't do that. But, but, but there is a true equality where when we sit at this table, I may have a unique degree of responsibility because of the nature of my job. Here. But when we sit at that table, there's an equal degree of authority that any man at that table can say anything. And there has to be agreement among us before we move forward. And that's a beautiful thing. A beautiful, good thing. It protects me from you because if you get angry about a decision or whatever and, and accuse me of being authoritarian or dictatorship or whatever because I'm wanting to lead in this way, it's not just me. I actually have two other guys that have been on their knees praying and we all kind of collectively thought this was the best thing. So if we, we made a mistake, it was all of us who made the mistake. So we bear it together, right? But it also protects you from me. Because now there's an avenue where if you think I'm in the wrong, you don't even have to come directly to me. You can go to another elder and say, I'm not sure if I'm right in this or I've got a problem. And they can help you bring it to me, right? So this is, I, I, there's, a, there's a safety in this design that I think is from God. So plurality of elders, it spreads the shepherding load. It balances out the weaknesses of one man. The three of us are very different people, very different temperaments, very different dispositions. I hope that you see that. I mean, when, when Stephen preaches, it's like, it's like he's like gathering you around for a bedtime story before he lays you in bed, right? I mean, it's, like, it's like a father, right? I mean, it's just so, to open the Bible and he's just calm. He's just drawing you in. And I'm like a bottle rock. I'm like, welcome. It's just different, right? We're different. And that's good. It's good for the congregation to recognize that God uses all kinds of different people. You don't have to be just like Brandon. In fact, there's many ways you shouldn't be, right? There's lots of things that Stephen brings that you should emulate better than what I do. And that's super helpful in lots of ways. So it guards the doctrine of the church, trains the congregation to appreciate multiple voices. You're here for the word, not for the one man who's preaching it. Um, It leads to more church planting, right? So if the mission is to plant more churches, guess what you need more of? pastors, right? <laughs> so part of the work is constantly raising up pastors and even the, the less experienced ones, they get like Drew, you know, he's an elder. I think he's qualified. Uh, uh, he, he's amazing, but he's also getting a lot of experience here with other experienced guys to where one day he may go plant a church, but he will be planting it having served in situations for the last four or five, six years. And he'll be more equipped than the guy just coming out of seminary, right? So I think plurality of elders actually enables more church planting, right? Um, yes. Yes, you can. Yeah, that's fine. We got plenty of time. We got, we're good. So when you were talking about the early church churches and how we model, how you wanted to model that here at St. Rose. Yeah. Um, back in the early church, would there have been a a senior elder like yourself, or were all elders basically? Is that more Americanized uh, in yeah. the church planning? Or yeah, the the it'd be very hard to make an argument for a lead pastor, senior pastor. Yeah. Definitely, it'd be hard to make an argument for a senior pastor that wields some higher degree of authority than the rest yeah. of the guys. Um, I think from First Timothy 5, where he's, he's saying, you know, give double honor 
to the elders, especially those who are laboring in teaching and preaching. There seems to be some sort of degree of amount that one elder is doing than the other. So a degree of responsibility, but not necessarily a degree of authority, like a difference there. Um, the only way you could make an argument for it would be if you said, okay, Paul was a senior elder, or Titus was the senior elder, or Timothy was the senior elder appointing others. Uh, but those would be the only three that you could, you could really try to but, – but again, that's more apostolic authority in planting the brand new churches. Paul had authority because of – by nature of his apostleship, not by nature of him being known. I was asking, I was talking to one of, one of my customers who's uh, really diverting now. He's, he's an elder in the Mormon church. Okay. And they are more – they are elder-led, mm-hmm. and they are all co-equal. Mm-hmm. They, they have a board of elders for lack of, right. you know, and that's how they lead. Mm-hmm. One not above the other, you know, right. in their hierarchy. So um, is that, basically what I'm asking is that's why a lot of American churches, I would imagine, that have pastor, like I came out of a church that had pastor, a board of elders mm-hmm. and deacons as well. Mm-hmm. So the elders were... Something separate from the pastor. They were more... Yeah. They would handle church discipline right. and things like that, but they were also a, a spiritual advisory board for sure. the pastor and something like that. Um, but here it's more like you were, displaying, you were saying, Stephen and Drew are more yeah. co-equal That's in, right. in, the, in the roles. But they were subject to the pastor's authority, right? The elders, oh, yeah, right, right. So that again, Still, sort of puts it. That's right. Puts him in a position where he falls hard. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that there's several reasons why. Well, let me just ask that. I think it's a good question. Why would an elder or a pastor not want to move into a plurality of elders? Why would he not want for that to be the polity for their church or my, or the government of the church? You lose control. Yeah. It slows everything down. I mean, it really does. I mean, I mean, I when we planted St. Rose, I was the only elder, and and man, I can move quick. I mean, I didn't have to. I mean, yesterday we had a situation where I needed to respond to an email, um, but I before I could respond to the email, I sent my draft of what I was going to say to Drew and Stephen and had to wait for them <laughs> to give me approval to say, yeah, that's a good, yeah, we agree. We, we collectively think that's a good way to do it, which is super helpful for me. Right. But I mean, it's important because you know, you can do bad. <laughs> I mean, you can say bad things accidentally. So, so that's, that's a helpful thing, but it also is a slowing thing. Right. I mean, used to, if I wanted to spend money, if I wanted to do whatever, I mean, I could just roll, but now it's like, well, we're not meeting again until two weeks from now because Stephen's out of town and we got to, you know, so, but that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. Not necessarily a bad thing. Hasty decisions are not always good decisions. Yeah. Even if they're done with the right motives. Right. Yep. I, one thing that I think, too, I think that there's a thought process that says true equality in an elder board doesn't work. Right? So there has to be head honchos. There has to be hierarchy. There has to be... Um, and I, and I agree that it's good to have one elder that you charge with, hey, you're going to lead the meeting. You're going to lead out on, on this, that, that, or another. But I think there's a thought that you get a group of dudes in a room to work on something together, and they have total equal authority across the board. 
you're just going to be at gridlocks. You're, you're, you're going to have problems. And that's where I come in and I say that's why the Bible makes such a big deal about the qualifications. Like such a big deal. If you get one elder in that room who's trying to have a spitting contest, trying to win more votes, trying to show why he's a valuable team player on the team, trying to whatever, you have destroyed the dynamic of the whole room. I mean, it, it's, it's, this is why Paul says, do not be hasty. You get a prideful man in there, and you have a huge problem on your hands, right? Um, and so that's why qualifications are so important. That's why the process at our church, you need to have, um, you need to have, have been at our church for a significant period of time. We interview 10 different members of 10 different ages before we ever even approach the congregation. Uh, we then approach the congregation. You've got two months to bring grievances in case we've not seen anything. We then bring it to a vote. But at that point, we've already, they've gone through an interview process already, even the elders. We've got a policy at our church. You may not know this, that we will not even consider or move forward if a man has even glanced at pornography one time in the last year. You have to be clean, clear of looking at pornographic image before we even think about recommending. Now, the Bible doesn't say give you a timeline, but we're looking at the qualification saying a one-woman man, and we're saying, okay, well, how? That's an epidemic in our world right now, right? It's pornography. So we're going, okay, well, where's the line? We're, are you not a one-woman man because of one month ago, two months ago, three months ago? So we were like, okay, we recognize we're doing something extra biblical here, but we got to have some sort of line or standard to say, okay, now we can see, right? You had some testedness. So you don't even be considered for a whole year. Um, and so... Um, Qualification is important, Can right? I ask a yeah. Kind of related to that. Yeah. So, what is the difference between, like, if you, if, like, on doctrine, and it talks about like somebody who doesn't teach false doctrine. Or mm-hmm. So, where it, where do you, we, in, some people interpret the Bible differently or interpret certain scriptures differently. What is the difference between like? I don't want to say false interpretation, but like a like a extra biblical interpretation mm-hmm. with false doctrine. Like, what yeah. is the delineation there? I mean, it's it's kind of the I'm sure you've heard the three tier thing. You know, the the. Um, I, I don't want to say I say that because Dr. Putman used to talk about it all the time. Um, he uh, uh, so there's a there's three tiers of importance when it comes to doctrine, right? So you've got primary doctrine, and that is you have to believe this in order to be a Christian, okay? You have to believe this in order to be a Christian. Um, so that's divinity of Jesus, uh, salvation by grace, grace alone, uh, by faith alone, right? That's inspiration of the scriptures. Like you need to, to be on there. To, you need to be agreeing here. So primary doctrine. Obviously, an elders, any elder needs to agree with the primary doctrine, right, and hold it very firm, be able to teach it, be able to rebuke Secondary doctrines are doctrines that you can be wrong about or disagree about and still be a Christian, um, but it'll affect fellowship within the church, right? So I think there are Presbyterians that believe in infant baptism um, that are totally born again, and I think that they're, they're saved. I just think they're wrong on that point. Uh, they think that baptism is functioning like uh, Old Testament circumcision was, and they make this interpretation. They make an argument from Scripture. I think they're doing the best they can. I think they're wrong. Do I think they're going to heaven? Absolutely. Do I think God's going to use them to do great things? Absolutely. Can I serve in the same church as them? Probably not. 
because baptism affects the way we do church life. <laughs> so secondary, we're Christian, but we probably can't do ministry together. You know, we can wave, talk, have good correspondence. We're not going to be on the same elder team. Third tier doctrine is what you think about the end times, when, when it's going to happen. Um, you're a Christian, we're all Christians. We can disagree on that, and we can still plan a church together. We can, we can have discussions that sharpen, but like, okay, agree to disagree. Let's go teach community group together. There's no issue. There's no problem. It doesn't affect the way that we actually do Christian ministry. So elders, uh, to be a qualified elder, you need to align in the primary and the secondary. You've got to align in the primary and the secondary. But there can be differences in the tertiary as long as those convictions are held in humility. Um, so... Even on the issue of Calvinism type things, predestination, election, uh, I mean, we've got some variety on our elder board, even in that, which, I mean, lots of people would say you're wild for having varying views of that because it affects so many things. Um, but we've yeah. got, yeah, but we've got varying views of that, and it's good. It's, it's helpful. It's, it's um, uh, sharpening, you know. I think it keeps everybody in balance. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I met with a guy a couple weeks ago that um, their elder board was so narrow that you had to ascribe to their particular eschatology. You had to believe in a particular, when the tribulation was going to happen and when the rapture was going to happen and if you differed then you you couldn't be. Because they said it was a unity thing. They wanted unity on the board so you had to, but you know. That's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I was disagreed with them. Good guy, good church but on that note, I was like, I'm not about. Let, so so here's the deal. This This class was supposed to in today, but we didn't even get to deacons, and deacons are important. So, would anybody be opposed to meeting again next week to talk about deacons and to sort of button up some last minute, some last things in the doctrine of church? Anybody opposed to that meeting next week? No, I'm not going to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be here for that. Yeah. Okay. If you record it, I'll record it. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can record it. So the last one was God designed the church to be mobilized for service by deacons. Now, I mean, I can talk fast and get through this in 10 minutes if y'all want to listen. All right, okay. <laughs> All right, so next week we'll come together. We'll, we'll finish up the class. Um, I'll close out. We'll have some question and answer time. And I really need y'all to... Um, if at all possible, next week, when we finish the class, like that day, to take that survey again that you took to begin with. Uh, the problem is you didn't put your name on it, so I have no idea whose original answers are whose. <laughs> is there um, You might be able to. You might be able to. I tried to. And I could, I could probably narrow it down by some of the initial questions and, and send it to you um, if, if you want me to. Uh, but I do need that for sure because I will be writing uh, a paper on uh, our time together and need to send that in like the next day. I mean, I need to send it in pretty quick. So, um, so, so if you could fill that out, that would be, that would be wonderful. I think I did it, but I did it wrong. That's fine. That's fine. I'll, I'll, uh, I mean, I'm I'll, not going to get to the well, I'm going to send it. I'm going to send an email. Wait, that's okay. That's okay. But I'll send an email. Um, I'll send an email and I'll have everything for you. So, all right. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll go on over.
Uh, Lord, we thank you so much just for your word and for our time together. Um, Pray that you would um, help us to be humble, help us to be faithful to what you've inspired here for us and shape our church to look the way that you would have it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.